Good morning. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I had an uh, interesting message from uh, Lou Truex this week on Facebook. Uh, he said he had seen the title for uh, the message for the passage we're looking at, and he was really looking forward to hearing about how to get a better voice. And I uh, said, if you could also throw in a series that would include better banjo playing, that would be great too. And I said, I don't think I can help you with either of those. I don't have any tips on how to get a better voice. Uh, but there is encouragement in the passage that we're looking at today on hearing a better voice. I don't know if uh, you've noticed or thought about this, but uh, tone of voice uh, and the person who's speaking to us can make all the difference in how we hear something, can't it? Come into my office. Sounds a lot different than come into my office. And it makes a big difference whether it's maybe a friend or a colleague or an angry boss speaking it to you. Even our own names can feel a lot differently based on who's saying it and how it's said. Jeffrey. Jeffrey. God calls us to respond to his voice by persevering in the race before us, by continuing in holiness. By accepting his discipline, we, we saw that last week as Pastor Bob led us through this middle section of Hebrews chapter 12. But how we perceive God's voice, how we hear it, whether it's angry and condemning and judgmental, or whether it's loving and gracious and encouraging and welcoming, it makes all the difference in how we respond, doesn't it? And we've been in Hebrews, I was looking back now, for nearly eight months, talking about the supremacy, the superiority of Christ, how Christ is greater, Christ is better, and we've seen it throughout this book. Christ gives us a better rest than Joshua could give the people. Christ is superior to Aaron and his priesthood. Christ ministers in, in the greater heavenly tabernacle. Christ is a better mediator who's inaugurated a better covenant founded on better promises. He's a greater high priest who's offered a better sacrifice that assures us a better hope, 
a better inheritance, and a better home. There's a reason why we keep coming back to this fundamental message over and over again. For one thing, it's what the writer keeps telling us. But Hebrews is designed to reinforce this, not just to change how we think, but to change how we feel and how we live based on what we learn about God. It's designed not merely to bring us more understanding, but to transform our relationship of God as we come to know Him. And again in chapter 12, our author is doing the same thing. In a unique way this time, he's contrasting two covenants that are symbolized by two mountains, Sinai and Zion. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles or your Hebrew Scripture journals to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. What we want to see this morning is not just the difference between those two covenants, but what they're really about, a vivid contrast in the people's experience of God, the experience of people who relate to God through Mount Sinai and through Mount Zion. So let's dig into God's Word together. Look at this experience of these Old Covenant believers symbolized in Mount Zion, starting in first. Verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearer beg that no further messages be spoken to them. If you want to know what it was like coming into a worship service for God's Exodus community coming out of Egypt that's pictured for us here, summarized, and and the details are back in Exodus 19. Thunder and lightning and thick clouds on the mountain and a a loud trumpet blast. Now, on the one hand, maybe you'd say, that actually maybe sounds pretty good. Maybe we could use some of that in our worship service, right? Loud trumpet blasts and uh, thunder and excitement, right? Except the people trembled and stood off at a distance. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, and the Lord descended on it. The the smoke went up like a furnace, and the mountain trembled. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The writer of the Hebrews says, "They, They could not even endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The the people were terrified. They stay back at a distance and they say to Moses, uh, you you go talk to God for us. This does not look safe. Uh, You you go. This is not an emotionally exhilarating or uplifting encounter. It was terrifying. It was foreboding. It was humbling. It was intimidating. It's a mountain of fire and darkness and tempest and and thunder, and all of it is meant to emphasize something. It's showing us God's shining holiness, His majestic glory, His perfect justice, and, and our sinfulness. In effect, God was saying through this experience, stay back, keep your distance, 
you cannot approach me because you are sinful. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be put to death. God is unapproachable, inaccessible, so that even his mediator, even Moses, trembles with fear. There's this threat of death and judgment. And all this sounds like uh, the warnings uh, that maybe some of you, like we heard from our mom, about playing ball in the house. Uh, We knew about gloom and tempest. No unclean thing shall approach the dinner table and live. Fear and trembling? Got that. If a beast sits on the good living room furniture, both you and it shall be put to death. Now we can laugh about that, but maybe sometimes do we obey or or worship or serve God out of fear to avoid bad outcomes? To avoid judgment. Uh, When Amelia and I were young parents in the 90s, uh, there was a good bit of fear and even some manipulation in Christian circles at times around parenting. And I remember a lot of the message that we received was, follow these rules and your kids will turn out the right way. Here's the formula. And so therefore, if you don't follow the formula, your kids aren't going to turn out the right way. And if your kids aren't turning out the right way, it's because you didn't do it the right way. Do this and you shall live. Now, there was some good practical wisdom in some of those books and seminars, but there was also a pretty good dose of fear and legalism and performance orientation. Looking back, it's hard not to see... You know, kind of the message was, we did all the right things with our children, and look how wonderful they turned out, and if you just obey as well as we did, your kids could turn out as wonderfully as ours have. And the implicit message was, you know, if your kids aren't following Jesus, you probably didn't pray enough. You should have memorized more Bible verses with them. You should have had them in the right school. You should have had them in youth ministry more. Maybe you didn't think that way. Maybe that wasn't your experience or your perception at all. Any of you ever had something bad happen, a bad day, a a bad event, and and you thought, what did I do wrong? What did I do to make God displeased with me to bring this on me? I bet God is unhappy with me now. I'm sure I can't expect His grace and favor after what I did. Sometimes I, you know, I pray and I read my Bible to, just to make sure something bad doesn't happen to me today. Like a little insurance policy. That's Mount Sinai. That's, that's what the author to the Hebrews wants us to see. It's, it's about law and judgment. It leads to fear and trembling and distance in the relationship. It says, stay back. Don't come near. You are unholy. You are unworthy. Mount Sinai is where the chosen people, God's own people, received the law through Moses. And it's not that the law itself was wrong or bad. They needed it to show them the way that they should go to reveal God's character. And also to point people to the need for a Savior. 
the law was given to remind us that we can't keep it. And we will never be able to keep it. The law makes us aware of how much we miss the mark and how we need a deliverance that we cannot provide. That's why the the law, this image of Mount Sinai, is full of fear and judgment and trembling and threats. But now look at the turn that happens. You have not come. You have not come to that kind of a place with God in Christ. But you have come, in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. That language there has been repeated over and over again in Hebrews. It's, it's been rendered, draw near. It's the same word back in chapter 4 that says, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Or in chapter 7 when it says we draw near to God through faith in Christ. And in chapter 10 when we're told to draw near to God with a true heart and a full assurance of faith. And the author is emphasizing this over and over again. Why? Because look at the one to whom we draw near to. I mean, first of all, did you notice the past tense there in verse 22? It's not even a command. He's not saying draw near. He's saying you have come. You have been brought near. You have been drawn to God through Christ. Yes, we we will experience that in the future, but it's our experience now from the moment of putting your faith in Christ all through your journey in this life. This is a description of you, Christian. You have drawn near to God through faith in Christ. And and what does that involve? Look at this picture of how that relationship with God changes us and the way we experience our Christian life. We've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now those three designations, I think they're basically all synonymous Maybe you've seen a a church here or there named Zion. In fact, my brother's a pastor at Zion Evangelical Church down in Shelbyville. Where does that name come from? Well, in the Old Testament, Zion was a hill where the Jebusites, an ancient Semitic tribe, had a stronghold. And David led the Israelites to conquer the city, and David makes it his royal residence. And then the temple is built there. And so it becomes synonymous with not just the city of Jerusalem, but with the place where God dwells with his people. Zion is symbolic of God living with us, being with us. And and remember, again, he's not talking about a literal earthly mountain. You've not come to what may be touched. The mountain, in air quotes, that you've come to, is not an earthly one. It's not a particular place on earth. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God is not tied to any earthly city or nation. It's not Indianapolis. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Washington. Christianity has no geographical center. 
every square inch of this creation belongs to God and is part of his heart for the entire world. We don't come to an earthly city, we come to Christ. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And and what that means is wherever we go, God is there. Do you see the, the assurance that gives us? And it's a reminder that God's work through his church is not centered in America. Because God loves Asia, and God loves Africa, and God loves Europe, and God loves America. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is not a place you can touch. We've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. So what is that about? We've come literally to myriads upon myriads of angels, thousands upon ten thousands. And a festal gathering is, well, it's a unique word in the New Testament, but it doesn't appear anywhere else. But in extra-biblical literature, it was a word for a holiday, a festival, a celebration. It's, It's about excitement. It's about joy. It's about rejoicing. That there's this image that the angels, these spiritual beings, are celebrating the greatness and the goodness of God continuously. And we, we read, we get this imagery throughout the Bible that uh, the Lord is said to descend from Sinai to show forth with his thousands of holy ones. In Revelation chapter 5, all the way at the end, John gets this vision Around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and wealth and honor and glory and blessing. In Luke's gospel, the Savior's birth is announced by the heavenly host. And Jesus tells us the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinful person gives their life to Christ in repentance and faith. And the voice of God in this new covenant relationship in Christ invites us to join with heaven in singing his praises. We know sorrow. We know pain. We know loss. We know grief and disappointment and difficulty, but the theme of our life in Christ is joy and celebration. It is for joy that we have come to Jesus to follow him into life. The joy of the Lord is our strength, God tells us. We rejoice with the company of heaven in Christ when we lift our hearts and our lives and our voices in praise to Jesus. We've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, that isn't about angels. Only humans in the Bible are described as being enrolled or written down in a book, the Lamb's Book of Life. So he's talking here about God's people, God's saints throughout all the ages, the old covenant people who trusted and believed in Yahweh and his revelation through that sacrificial lamb that pointed towards the Messiah that would come. You know, we we sometimes maybe get nervous about the the language of the communion of the saints because, well, maybe that sounds like 
something mystical or sacramental or liturgical in, in, uh, you know, in, a, in a way that we're not comfortable with. But this is the true communion of the saints that's being pictured here. Not just a few hundred people or a few dozen people in a building, but we are joining together with all the people of God. And, and it reminds us that that crosses all kinds of boundaries and barriers. And that if I've come to know God through faith in Christ, that enlarges my heart for everyone who loves Jesus. Regardless of their background, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what differences we have. Does my relationship with Jesus lead me to love people who also love him? And we've come to God, the judge of all. Now, based on what we heard earlier about this picture of Sinai, maybe that doesn't sound like good news because it makes us, again, think of fire and thunder and tempest and trembling and scary stuff. But it's meant here to remind us that the God who is judge of all, the God whom we worship, has already passed judgment on us in Christ. And that is good news. There is no fearful judgment waiting for us if we are in Christ. Jesus has paid it all. And so now when we see the Father as a judge, that is good news. It's a motivation to celebrate because one day God will hold everyone accountable. No one will get away with it. No one will get away with injustice and oppression and evil and wrongdoing and theft and slander and murder and adultery and all the rest of it. That should give you hope and confidence as you follow Christ. That should be part of the positive motivation for following and trusting in Jesus. Remember what we said earlier at the beginning, you know, how somebody says your name and what kind of relationship you have with them shapes how you hear your name being said. Now, imagine you're driving down the road and you see flashing blue and red lights in your rearview mirror. Now, if you're obeying the speed limit, you have no fear because there's no judgment that you're subject to. What if there's a dangerous situation on the road ahead or some person driving violently and dangerously down the road? You want to see those red and blue lights flashing. The red and blue lights are good news for people who are in danger from violent, evil people. We want a God who is a judge of all. It's scary, but it's also good news for us in Christ. And that is a hope that leads us in joyful following of Jesus. We have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What a beautiful phrase that is. I think it's a different way of saying what he said before. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. In Christ, we have already been declared righteous. And one day, God will 
make us perfect and complete and everything that we ought to be. And in fact, we now have confidence and when we die, we enter into the presence of Christ immediately. Our souls return to the Lord who made us even as our bodies are in the ground. We call that the intermediate state because it's the in-between our life and our bodies here on this earth and our life eternally in glorified, resurrected bodies when Christ returns. But that also gives us hope here and now that we have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's you and me. We are being made perfect, and one day we will be perfected, finally, in Christ. Does that give you hope? That even now, God is at work making you to be what He has declared you to be in Christ. And it's a guaranteed work. Think about how that changes our motivation and our empowerment in following Jesus from a stern taskmaster who can never be pleased because we can never live up to the law to instead a father who says, I am at work to do good for you ultimately and eternally in everything that I bring into your life to make you more like Jesus. And you can't fail. Just trust me. That's the motivation for following and trusting Christ. One day we will be perfected and completed. God is at work doing that now. It's God's work in us and through us by His Spirit. And we have come to this because we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We haven't come to some mere human being, even, a, even an exalted one like Moses. Because Moses needed forgiveness. Moses needed atonement. Moses needed rescue. Even Moses was scared to go up on the mountain. And Jesus takes the judgment of God and goes boldly into his presence to open a new and living way for us. We don't come to Moses or Mary or Paul or Peter or Daniel or any of them as great as they are because we've come to Christ, because He is the guarantee and the promise and the security of this covenant relationship in which we now stand. And He sort of brings all this together by saying, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, the significance was explained earlier in Chapter 9, if you remember back, the, the priest, remember on the Day of Atonement, as the blood is poured out, has to sprinkle the tabernacle and the worship elements and the altar and everything inside and his garments and even the people with the blood of the sacrifice. In that way, everything was cleansed with blood because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins because the wages of sin is death. And someone will die for your sins. But this blood speaks a better word. The author talks about the blood of Abel. Back in Genesis 4, God says, 
Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. He was the victim of the, the first act of violent murder at the hand of his brother Cain. And his blood cries out for vengeance and retribution and judgment and justice. That is what all of us deserve because all of us are guilty. But, but now in Christ, we have been sprinkled, we've been covered, we've been washed by a blood that speaks a better word. The blood of the Savior of mankind, the blood of the Son of God in the flesh, the blood of Jesus, speaks the word forgiveness, speaks the word peace, speaks the word hope. Because Jesus says, I've come into the world not to condemn it, but that through me the world might be saved for all who would believe in me. Jesus' blood speaks of reconciliation. He makes blood through peace, through his blood shed on the cross. His blood speaks a message of pardon. His blood secures mercy. And he has poured it out for you freely. So that all who would trust in him would be sprinkled in the blood of the Lamb of God for forgiveness. And Jesus stands at the throne of God. Offering His righteousness and His sacrifice for you, for all who will receive it, to be covered, to say, I died for that one, I died for that one, I died for that one. Remember their sins no more. Father, look at my sacrifice instead. Look at my blood. The blood of Christ says pardon and freedom and joy and forgiveness, and redemption, and hope. That is what we have come to. Everything in the Old Covenant says, stand back, stay away, keep your distance, do not approach. And everything in the New Covenant says, welcome, come in. Come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and find forgiveness. Come and find hope. Come and find life. Every reason why your sin kept the old covenant believers at arm's length has been dealt with in the work of Christ. And now our worship is an expression not of fearful trembling, but an expression of joy, exuberant joy. That doesn't mean we're we're out of control, doesn't mean we have to be loud, but it means that of all the people on earth, we have reason to be joyful and confident and thankful and grateful and filled with exultation. And yes, there's times of quiet and reflection and lament and sorrow. We don't have to paste a smile on our face to come into God's presence. But the reason we're reminded here of God's justice and His holiness and His transcendent is not only so that we could stand in awe of who He is, but that out of that awe, we would turn and say, thank you, Father, that that does not keep me at a distance because Jesus has bridged the gap 
so that now I can know a God who is holy and righteous and pure and loving and kind and good. And that changes the way I think about you and how I want to live for you. We see a God who is holy and awesome and majestic and who also says, I dwell in a high and a lofty place, but also with those who are lowly and humble in heart. God's character has not changed. See, there's not an angry, vengeful Old Testament God and a gentle, loving New Testament God. In the Old Testament, God is awesome and holy and majestic and fearsome, and He's also kind and patient and gracious and good. And in the New Testament, God is loving and gentle and kind and good and a righteous judge and a vindicating king and an avenging conqueror. Read the last book of the Bible if you don't see Jesus that way. God's character has not changed, but our approach to him, our perception of him, our experience of him has all changed because of Jesus. One pastor described our relationship with God in two words, serious joy. Serious joy. I think that's what the writer of the Hebrews is picturing here. We are deadly serious and an awful, reverent wonder at God and full of inexpressible joy and amazing confidence. Everything about this new covenant says, come, draw near, be a part of the community, be a part of the family, come and welcome. Mount Zion is hearing God's grace. It's Jesus and the blood of a better covenant that has brought us near, that gives us a better motivation and a better empowerment for obedience and endurance because now we are already secure, we are already loved. It's a better voice speaking joy and hope and assurance. Forgiveness is awesome. There was forgiveness in the old covenant. There was a righteous God who said, you are forgiven, you may go. The law has been satisfied. You are no longer condemned. But Jesus speaks an even better word. He adopts us into God's family and says, now you may come in. You are loved. You are brought near. We are now all children of God by his gracious adoption into his family so that now we obey not out of fear, not to get rewards, but in the new and living way of the Spirit knowing that God is a Father who loves us. I've been thinking about my mom recently. She passed away a year and a half ago. It's the second Mother's Day that uh, I've had without her. And um, sometimes my mom asked me to do things that I didn't like, and I didn't want to do, and I didn't think she knew what she was talking about. Sometimes she asked me to do things that I didn't understand. Sometimes we argued. Sometimes I didn't appreciate her but I never for a moment doubted that she loved me. And I know that's not everyone's experience. I never doubted that she loved me, and that gave me a confidence as her son in how I thought of her, how I approached her. I mean, if you think about it, not to be kind of weird or anything, but I had the opportunity to, you know, knock on the door and go in her bedroom because I was her child. And she delighted to invite me into her presence. And I so appreciate 
The memories that I have of her knowing her love and her good intention for me. And we have a heavenly father who is so much better. So much better. And that changes how we see him, how we live for him. Sinai says, gloom and judgment and fear and stay back and you're not worthy. And Jesus through Mount Zion and his blood says, joy and freedom and come close. Trust me, I love you because the blood of Christ has brought you near. Let's live out of that confidence. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word, a better word than our sin, a better word than our failure, a better word than our fear and doubt. Oh God, help us to grow in knowing you through your word to us in your son Jesus, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection victory. Jesus says, welcome and come. Father, if there are any here today who have never come to you, I pray that today, Father, they would open their hearts to see your joy, your love, your goodness and follow you into life. Help us all to follow you in that way, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.